Well, we welcome all of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you who are meeting together here at the Central Campus, along with others who are gathering together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, South Calgary, Bridgeland, and also Bears Paw. Before I get into the Word, I, I just have to say, I, I heard the testimony of everyone who was baptized this weekend, young and older, and I was so blessed to hear how God continues to move in our church, how He continues to transform lives by His Spirit, and also uh, through His prayers and ministry of the people like you. Thank you, church, for your faithfulness to God through your, just the way you live, the way you serve, and also, of course, the way you give. To God be all the glory, not only for the things He has done, but for the things he continues to do. Amen? Amen. Well, we're continuing our study in the book of Romans, and one of the key things that we've learned so far um, is that what you believe about how God sees you dramatically impacts the way that you live your life. If you believe that God loves and accepts you when you're good, but that he punts you into the doghouse when you mess up, you will experience significant and ongoing frustration in your life as a Christian. And in the passage that we're looking at today, the Apostle Paul gets really personal and transparent as he writes about the frustration that he was experiencing in his life, his spiritual life. And so, if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand and join me in reading a portion of the Scripture lesson that we're going to look at today. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us pray. Again, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. It's instruction for life. And Lord, I ask now that as we examine um, our scripture text more carefully and more deeply, Lord, that we will not only learn new information, but Lord, that we would hear from you 
And Lord, we'd have the courage to say yes to whatever it is you're asking of us. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now in this passage that we just read together, the Apostle Paul is sharing from his own life to illustrate the truth of what he taught in the first half of Romans 7, which we looked at last time. And his story touches on three major themes. First of all, he says, there's a battle that's going on inside of me. He expresses it this way in verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Now, I'm sure that we can all relate to what Paul is sharing here. I know I can, especially when I'm on the golf course. What I want to do, I assure you, I hardly ever do. And what I do not want to do, like hit the building to my immediate right, that is the very thing I do. Secondly, says Paul, my spirit, the real me, wants to do what is right and good. As I explained previously, even though we have a body, a soul, and a spirit, at the core of our being, we are spirit, which separates us from the rest of creation. Your body is not you. Not even your soul is wholly you. The real you is your spirit. Now, when Paul put his trust in Christ, his spirit, which had been dead up to that point in time, because it was full of self rather than God, his spirit came to life because Christ entered his life. The old Paul, born into the family of Adam and Eve, was dead and gone forever. And the new Paul, born again in Christ, was made spiritually alive through Christ. And that's why Paul says, my spirit, the real me, wants to do what is right in the sight of God. Look at verse 16. Paul writes, I agree that the law is good. In verse 18, for I have a desire to do what is good. Verse 22, for in my inner being, in other words, my spirit, I delight in God's law. Paul says, I want you to know this about me. My spirit, the real me, wants to please my Lord. Which leads to the third part of Paul's story. Paul says, even though my spirit wants to do what's right, my body and soul tempt me to do what I do not want to do. Look at verse 14. He writes, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Now what's he saying there? Well, when he says the law is spiritual, what he's really saying is the law comes from God and therefore is good. It's spiritual. But he writes, I'm unspiritual. Now, the original word for unspiritual means flesh, which we see at times in the scriptures. And so when Paul says he's unspiritual, he's actually referring to his humanity, his sinful nature, or his flesh. 
When he says he was sold as a slave to sin, he's saying that through no choice of his own, he and all of us really inherited this sinful nature, this predisposition to sin from Adam and Eve, which plays out in our body and in our soul. And Paul says this sinful nature is the cause of the struggle and the frustration that he's experiencing. In verse 17 he writes, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. In verse 20, he pretty much says the same thing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Now, at first glance, it seems like Paul is kind of, you know, passing the buck. He's excusing himself um, for wrongdoing by passing the blame to something else. But he's just re reinforcing the truth of what we've been learning. He's saying, even though my spirit never wants to do wrong, there is a force at work tempting me to give over members of my body to sin. In verse 20, he simply calls that negative force sin, which I, of course, have been referring to in this series as Mr. Sin because Paul actually personifies sin. And so what Paul, through his story, is teaching us is before you became a follower of Jesus, you probably broke any number of the commandments, and doing so didn't bother you hardly at all. And the reason for that is you were spiritually dead in the sense that you were living without God in your life. And during that time, you developed all kinds of unhealthy thought patterns, behaviors, and coping skills. You were at the center of your life, not God. But then you were introduced to Jesus. And in time, you put your trust and faith in him. And the moment you did that, Jesus entered your life, making you spiritually alive and justified and righteous in the eyes of God in the eternal realm. Now, unfortunately, in the earthly realm, there wasn't a way to delete all the baggage from your former life without Christ. All the unhealthy, sinful habits, the thought patterns, or Mr. Sin, didn't suddenly just go away. Instead, Mr. Sin set up squatter's rights in your body and soul and constantly tempts you to do what your spirit, the real you, does not want to do. And so there is this struggle and this frustration going on within us between, on the one hand, our spirit that is in Christ and our flesh or our sinful nature on the other. Now, many of you, I'm sure, can identify with the struggle that Paul uh, is testifying to here. And some of you find yourself asking, like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I win this battle? In fact, some of you 
may even find yourselves wondering whether you're a Christian at all. Well, the good news is, it is precisely because you are a Christian that you're having this battle. It's when there is no battle, when there is no struggle, there is cause for concern because it raises the question whether you are spiritually alive or not. The fact that you have a battle going on between your spirit and your sinful nature over what is right and wrong, over what is good and bad, indicates that your spirit is alive in Christ. Because you see, our spirit in Christ will always want to do what Jesus would do, and that is what is right and good. Now, unfortunately, our flesh, or Mr. Sin, he will constantly tempt us to turn members of our body and soul over for his sinister purposes. And so when you're playing golf, for example, and you're getting ready to drive the ball, the real you, your spirit, says, now remember, it's only a golf game. This is not the PGA. Your life is not on the line here. But Mr. Sin, he likes to tickle our pride and our insecurities, and he comes along and says, you better not mess this one up. Because the others who are golfing with you, you know, they're going to tell everybody they know what a lousy golf, golfer and athlete you are. And then you have a lousy drive or a lousy putt. And Mr. Sin says, you better lend me your mouth. You got to do some damage control here. So you can blow off some steam and blame your clubs, maybe the golf course, the weather for the shot you just made. And then you let Mr. Sin have your tongue. And after you've, shot, you know, after you've shot off your mouth, destroyed one of your clubs, you feel lower than a snake's navel. And you shake your head and you say, I can't believe that I actually allowed Mr. Sin to do that. What is it with me? And in that moment, you're feeling the same way that Paul felt when he said in verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Now, wretched, by the way, does not mean evil. It means miserable. Paul was not saying that he, that he because he was thinking that way or this battle was going on, that he was evil. He's asking, who's going to rescue me from the misery and the frustration of this battle that's going on inside of me? And he gives the answer from his own experience and also what he knows to be true in verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now notice he doesn't point us to a procedure. He doesn't point us to a multi-step program or pathway. No, he just points us to a person, Jesus Christ. He says his hope is found in the living Christ, or as he says back in verse 6 of chapter 7, 
the way of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul writes on exactly the same issue, but he gives a challenge. And this is what he says. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under law. You are not under, you are not being mastered, controlled by the law. You are now being led by the Spirit of God. In this passage, Paul says, the key to living in victory is the Spirit-filled life. It is living or walking in the Spirit. So what does it mean to live in the Spirit or to live in Christ? Well, Paul addresses that question in Romans 8, which is one of the most wonderful chapters in the entire Bible. In the time remaining, I'm only going to focus on the first four verses in which Paul spells out the first of several principles in this chapter on what it means to live in the Spirit. That first principle is this. To live in the Spirit means you, do, you no longer live under the fear of condemnation. Now, the first four verses in Romans 8 are a summary of Paul's teaching in Romans 6 and 7. So I'm just going to read the first two verses. And please join me in reading uh, this passage along with me. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now notice Paul begins with the word therefore. He's saying on the basis of the truths that I have taught in Romans 5 to 7, there is now, this is the conclusion, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now notice he says, there's no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. The term or the phrase, in Christ Jesus, is used over 160 times in the New Testament. And it refers to those who have put their trust in Christ and therefore are in Christ. That means that the promises and the teachings that we're going to look at in this chapter are directed to the followers of Christ. So what does no condemnation mean? Well, for the Christian, no condemnation means to be free from any debt or penalty. It means God finds no fault in us, nothing to punish us for. Let me unpack that a little. First of all, no condemnation means that when you sin, God does not kick you out of his family. There are those that believe that God forgives us of our past, but then the moment that we sin again, we're back in the doghouse, 
And we got to start the process all over again. So in other words, we're constantly going back and forth. I'm out, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm in. It's a great way to live your Christian life. In our study through Romans 5 and 6, you'll recall me referencing 2 Corinthians 4.18 a number of times, which teaches that we live in two realms, the eternal realm and the earthly realm. And we learned that when we put our trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior, there is a divine exchange that takes place. Our sins are put on Christ, and Christ's righteousness is put on us, which makes us in the eternal realm righteous, acceptable, and perfect forever in the sight of God. We don't become righteous in the sight of God because of religious performance or by keeping the law perfectly. No, we become righteous in the sight of God because by faith we are in Christ and he is perfect and that will never change. In Luke 15, Jesus told the story of a young man who asked for his inheritance early and he headed out of town and he lived in, lived in unbridled bridled sin. When the partying came to an end, and the money came to an end, this man, while he was feeding pigs, came to his senses and had a change of heart and mind. And he headed home in a spirit of humility and repentance. During all that time, and we don't know how long it was, let's assume it was a number of years, during all that time, his father's love for him never wavered. And every day, he would look at the on the horizon and he long and looked for his son's return. When he saw him coming, he ran to meet his son. He wrapped his arms around him. He forgave him even before he asked. That's a picture of our Heavenly Father's unconditional love for us even when we mess up, when we sin. But please note that even though our Heavenly Father's love is unconditional, as we see in the life of the prodigal son, there's always a cost when we go our own way when we sin. There always is. Even though we aren't given the details, we know that the decisions that this son made cost him his wealth and it's most likely given the lifestyle he was living that it cost him his health it cost him precious years with his father and his family he couldn't get any of that back folks it was a result of decisions he made the decision he made to walk away from the Lord And therefore, we must not take sin lightly. But even in the midst of it all, our Father's love for us doesn't change. Secondly, no condemnation means that God's not angry with you when you struggle, as Paul did here, with sin in your life. Ray Steadman says, you may get angry and frustrated with yourself, but God isn't angry at you. He's patient with you. 
He, he's like a loving father watching his little boy begin to take his first steps. I mean, if the child stumbles and falls, the father doesn't yell at the child. Any loving, healthy, emotionally healthy father will pick up that child and hold that child close and encourage him to keep on keeping on and then will show him how to walk and help him to do it. As you've often heard me say, it is the direction of your heart and your life, not the perfection of your life, that God is most concerned with. If your heart is right, if you are in love with Jesus, if you desire to grow closer and to please Jesus, then your life and your attitudes and your behaviors will eventually follow your heart. The third thing no condemnation means is that God doesn't punish you when you sin. Because remember, in the eternal realm, as we've discussed before, you are no longer the object of God's wrath that we learned in Romans 1 and 2. The way that you were when you were rejecting God, when you were ignoring God, when you were replacing God with something or someone else, No, the minute that you repented of your sins and said, I'm going in a different direction, I'm now walking toward the Lord. Jesus took all of God's wrath that was actually directed at you as judgment on your sin and your rebellion. He took all of that upon himself on the cross in order to justify and to redeem you. And as his forever child... He no longer relates to you as a judge. He now relates to you as a loving father. Now, having said that, let me be clear once again that Paul's not giving us license to sin. Romans 6, Paul writes two times What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And his answer both times are the same, by no means. Church, sin may not change our position in Christ in the eternal realm, but it can lead to all kinds of negative consequences in the earthly realm. We've seen it in the life of the prodigal son. But for example, if, if you disregard the law of gravity and you jump off a two-story building and you break your leg, you are reaping the consequences of ignoring a law. And that's why it's important not to be flippant about keeping the law. We obey the law not only out of our love for Christ and our desire to please Him and to honor Him as our Lord and King, but we also do it so it will go well with us in this life. I mean, God gives his precepts and principles and commands in in the scriptures here for our ultimate good. Make no mistake, sin hurts us in so many ways. It can hurt us emotionally. For example, a lie, gossip, slander may not only destroy a person's reputation, but also their joy and peace. 
Sin hurts us physically, an example of which I just shared when you ignored the law of gravity. It hurts other people around us, especially those that are closest to us. Sin also hurts our fellowship with God. When we sin, our relationship with God isn't broken, but our fellowship with God is. In the same way, when you're upset or you deeply disappoint your spouse, the marriage isn't over, but you feel the barrier. You feel that emptiness between you. The fellowship's broken. Furthermore, when you sin, your usefulness for God is limited. God can't use you the way he wants to. In John 15, 4, Jesus said that if you want to bear fruit, you need to remain in the vine. You need to stay in fellowship with the Lord. And sin, as we discussed, really messes with that. And finally, sin also brings discipline from the Lord. In Hebrews 12, verse 5, it says the Lord disciplines those that he loves. When you get off track, when you sin, God loves you too much to leave you there. No, he is going to use discipline or whatever to confront and to bring correction and to get you back on track. The purpose of discipline is not to punish. It's to correct and to bring growth. It comes from love so that you'll become all that God created you to be. And that's why we read in, in John 16, 8, for example, that the Holy Spirit will convict us of sin. However, the Holy Spirit doesn't lay a big guilt trip on us. Now, Satan will do that. The Bible refers to Satan as the accuser. And some people ask me, well, how can I tell the difference between the voice of Satan accusing me and the voice of the Holy Spirit convicting me? Well, Satan will hit you with generalized accusations. Like, you know, you're worthless. Or you're hopeless. Or you really blew that. Give up, it's no use trying. It's too late to reconcile. There's just too much water under the bridge. The Holy Spirit of God, on the other hand, will be very specific and will simply and calmly say things like, that was wrong. That attitude you have right now toward that other person is not right. You need to forgive that person. You need to make that right. And so keeping all of that in mind, living in the Spirit means that even though you take sin seriously, you no longer live under the fear of condemnation. When I think of living under the fear of condemnation, I'm reminded of a time in my early teens when I played ice hockey. And near the end of one particular season, they selected certain players to try out for what they called at that time the all-star team. 
that would represent our region in, all provincial, in an all-provincial tournament. Well, I was selected to try out for this team, which took me and everyone else I knew quite by surprise, but I decided to try out anyways. Now, that was a long time ago. There's not much that I remember of the details of that experience. But I do remember how the person in charge of the tryouts treated us. He was, at least by his demeanor, a miserable man. Constantly yelled at us, humiliated us, worked us so hard that there were times that we literally felt like throwing up and sometimes we actually did. If we didn't do it the way he wanted it done, he demanded we hit the ice, do 30, 40 push-ups, and then skate a number of laps around the rink. If someone blew a play, he would stop the play. He'd call us all together, and then he'd proceed to make an example of one or more of us. I remember feeling humiliated, demoralized, not sleeping well, even though I was dead tired. Anyways, the day of decision came. And a man that I'd never seen, he came into our dressing room, he introduced himself, and then he let us know that we made the team. He also informed us that he would be our coach. Now his announcement brought a collective sigh of relief, not only because we made the team, but also because we would be free from the man who tortured us and brought down condemnation on us. Our new coach seemed like a nice guy, which gave me some hope. But I wasn't very confident in my hockey ability, and I still feared that he's going to figure out pretty soon how bad I actually was and cut me. So for the first few practices, I continued to be really uptight. I was really hard on myself. And amazingly, the coach noticed. And he asked to talk to me after. And I figured it was the end of the road, but instead it was a conversation that was not only life-giving, but it, it changed my whole perspective. After I told him my feelings of inadequacy, the fear of messing up, he said something like, Henry, you're on this team because I chose you. And you have my words. You're not going to get cut. He said, I know the tryouts are brutal and the other fellow can be really harsh but you're no longer under his leadership. You're now under my leadership. And I'm your coach, and I'm not here to discourage you. I want to develop you in your skills as a hockey player. Oh, he said, I'm, I'm going to call you on things. I'm going to push you. I'm going to challenge you. And yes, I'm going to bench you if, if you're not giving your all. But would you stop focusing on failing and what you're not doing? And instead, would you start focus on just doing your best, giving it your all, and enjoying the game? You know, it's hard to explain how absolutely freeing that conversation was. To actually see my coach not as a taskmaster, shouting out orders that I would jump to, yes, sir, 
and instead to see him as a mentor. I mean, he even began to feel like a friend who had my best interests at heart. It brought joy back into the game for me. It freed me to be me. Oh, he still made his work hard, and he brought correction, but now I was no longer motivated out of a fear of being humiliated or condemned. Rather, I, I actually wanted to please him, and I wanted to do my best. Now, church, I share that with you because living in the Spirit or living in Christ is like that. Jesus is your friend, not your taskmaster. He loves you like a father does. He doesn't condemn you. He wants to empower you. And yes, at times, correct you and even discipline you out of love because he wants to see you grow in your love and your faith in him and to be who he created you to be. Now, this doesn't mean you'll have it all together overnight. Doesn't mean Mr. Sin won't attempt to bring you back under his influence of fear and anger and lust and, and, and selfishness and all the other sins. But in Galatians 5.16, Paul writes, the more we walk in the Spirit, the closer we walk with Jesus and listen to his voice, the more we will want to please him and not gratify the desires of the flesh. We can have the confidence that as we humbly surrender ourselves to the Lord and walk with the Spirit, God is transforming us from the inside out into the image of Jesus. In fact, there's going to be times where you're going to encourage someone, you're going to forgive someone, you're going to be patient with someone. You're going to be kind with someone. And it's going to shock you because you'll walk away and you'll say, my goodness, that is so unlike the way I was even just a year ago. You'll suddenly realize that God's grace is becoming real in you without a real struggle or even a conscious effort. I'll close with this. Bob George gives an example of how, grow, how, how God grows us in his love and in his grace through the Spirit. He tells of a time that he asked his daughter, Debbie, to pick up fruit that had fallen from one of the fruit trees in the backyard. And when he came home later that day, he noticed that she hadn't done it. And he proceeded to give her an earful. He says, I, 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 I ranted and raved and I yelled and I made a total fool of myself. A few minutes later, he says, I was in my bedroom feeling guilty and embarrassed. I got down on my knees and I asked God for forgiveness. But he says, my prayer rang hollow that day. And in my heart, it was as if God was saying, Bob, I have already forgiven you. I mean, what do you think happened at the cross over 2,000 years ago? 
Bob responded, but Lord, I'm so sorry for losing my temper. And he sensed the Spirit of God whisper, how sorry are you, Bob? And Bob said, oh, I'm really sorry. Well, then go tell Debbie that you're sorry. Bob says, well, I'm not that sorry, Lord. And the Lord said, don't you see, Bob, that the problem is not between you and me here. You've insulted my daughter, Debbie, and she's in her bedroom crying. The problem is between you and her. Bob, if you really love me, you're going to go and be reconciled with her. And he goes on to write, that day I discovered what the power of the Holy Spirit is. You see, he said, it it took no power at all for me to ask God for forgiveness. That was easy. But it took the power of the Holy Spirit, several angels and a few mules thrown in to get me to humble myself, to go to my daughter and to tell her how wrong I was and I asked for her forgiveness. You see, church, when you realize and embrace the truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, when you realize that He loves you and accepts you unconditionally with an everlasting love, And out of that freedom and that awareness, you walk with him daily. And you open up your heart to him and to his leading, his whispers through the scriptures. He'll work in your heart. He will transform your heart with a level of sensitivity that neither the law or even self-discipline will ever accomplish. And the more you grow to understand how much he delights in you, the more you're going to be delighted in him and the people that he brings across your pathway. May it be so. To the glory of God and for the sake of the world, that needs the Jesus that we know and love. Can you say amen to that? Amen. So would you just take a moment now and say, Lord, what are you you saying to me? And Lord, what do you want me to do about it?